0: The Lord saw that the wickedness of man on the earth was great, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from the face of the land. Man." and animals, and creeping things, and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his generation. Noah walked with the Lord." This is the Word of the Lord Thanks be to God. Please remain standing as we pray. It was not some kind of prophetic wisdom when I chose to be preaching this next season on the flood story that we would have a very real flood and hurricane going on in the Carolinas, also in the Philippines, also in China, two major flooding storms. So let us pray for those disasters now before we begin This sermon series on the flood and let me encourage you that we will as a church be supporting those relief efforts through anglican relief and development fund if you give towards the rector's discretionary fund those monies will be going to flood relief let us pray father we ask that in this hour you would deal graciously with your people especially those places where there is flooding in the Carolinas. Lord, we pray also for the Philippines and for China. Lord, we ask that you would bring your relief and your salvation in these horrible storms. Father, we ask that not only would you heal and protect, but also, Lord, that you'd speak your gospel over those who have lost so much, including friends and family. And, Father, as we open your word today... We ask that we would see in this flood story, the gospel. That we would be changed more and more to be like Christ in this world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. I want to live more faithfully. I want to obey God more consistently. I want to obey God more boldly. I want to obey God more joyfully. And so we come to the Noah story. Noah has an amazing story about faith. When we look at Hebrews chapter 11, that hall of heroes moment, we are told that Noah's radical obedience to God is by faith. That it was his faith that enabled him to be obedient To what God had called him to do but we would miss the point of the Noah story if we think this is all just about Noah we'd miss the point of the Noah story if we try to turn it into a moral fable something where you can say let's just try to be a little more like Noah that if you were trying to build a fable of best practices coming out of the flood story you would miss the point you could imagine something being written like this all I really needed to know I learned from Noah's Ark. You could learn little stories if you went down that road, little dictums, like be proactive. Noah didn't wait for his ship to come in, he built one. Or plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Or be punctual. Missing the boat is disastrous, just ask a unicorn. (laughs) Be humble. Remember, the ark was built by amateurs, and the Titanic was built by professionals. And my favorite, stay fit. Who knows what you might be asked to do when you're 600 years old? But see, that's not what this story is about. The Noah flood story is about the gospel. It's about Jesus. Jesus. For as Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, as he's walking on the road to Emmaus, he says to those disciples that he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Every bit of scripture is pointing to Jesus. And we must realize that this short sermon series, just three weeks looking at the gospel in the flood, is about the gospel. And as we look at the good news, as we can begin to imagine that there could even be good news in this flood story, what we'll see in these short verses in today's text, just these short few verses, that the gospel in the flood is that God is grieved with human sin. God is grieved with us. We have broken the heart of God. We have grieved God's heart with our wickedness. The good news must begin there. But not only does this gospel in the flood tell us that we've grieved the heart of God, but the gospel in the flood tells us that God is still gracious to us. Even though we have grieved his heart with sin, God is gracious. But not only is he grieved and not only is God gracious, but as we'll see in the gospel here, God is ultimately growing faithful obedience in Noah and in you and me. So first, the gospel in the flood is that God is grieved. God's heart is grieved by our wickedness. If you're following with me in chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 5, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God is grieved by the great wickedness of humanity. Grieving means that he's hurt, he's pained, he's devastated over this broken world of sin. And of course, I think the grief here is because in contrast to what God sees here in chapter 6, if you look back to what he saw back in chapter 1, right? Chapter 1 begins with those words just a page back, a few chapters back. Chapter 1, verse 31, God saw, he looked out of our creation, and God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's what he saw at the end of his creation. He looked out and saw it. It was very good. And yet here by chapter 6, he looks out and he sees, as verse 5 says, that the wickedness of man and the earth was great. Chapter 6, verse 12 goes further to say, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so judgment comes. God is grieved with the creation he has made. And judgment comes. Verse seven, God says, "'I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them.'" I remember as an atheist, when I'd hear passages like this with judgment, I would say, you know, I don't want to worship a God who brings judgment. I don't want to worship a God that brings judgment, but you know what I realized in time is I was totally, that was totally untrue. Ultimately, what we find is that if there is a God in heaven, the only way he would be worthwhile, worthy of our worship is if he will judge what is evil. For God to behold evil in this world and to turn a blind eye and say, oh, it doesn't matter." that God would not be a good God. As Miroslav Volf, who I've quoted before, the Croatian theologian, who grew up facing the ethnic cleansing in the Yugoslav Wars, writes this. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. But you might say, isn't a flood a bit much? I mean, a flood? Our problem, And it wasn't just a problem in Noah's day, it's still a problem today. We do not take our sin seriously enough. St. Augustine was famous for describing the heart of a human being, dealing with the challenge of what we call original sin, the fact that every human being since Adam and Eve has been born into sin. Augustine explained this with a metaphor. He said, imagine that it's like a, a human being is born and they're given a set of scales. A set of scales at birth to weigh between good and evil. And that that weighing between good and evil is really an ability that the human heart has. They can look at a decision and say, okay, there's a good and there's a bad way to go, and they can make that choice. And he says, it would seem like at that point God has just given us the option to choose a good life. He says, and yet the Bible tells us that there's something fundamentally wrong with the scales we've been given As he says so clearly, an enemy has been among the scales. From the moment of that serpent's deception in the Genesis chapter 3 story, our scales have been broken. Our scales are off. The human tendency is to turn towards selfish game, ambition towards evil. We are, whether we like to admit it or not, more selfish, more narcissistic, more tribal, and more twisted than we'd like to admit. Now, I don't want you to like this flood story. That's not why we're doing this. I don't want you to like this story. I'm not going to sanitize this story. We're not going to make a Disney film out of this flood story. And note that if you have a serious difficulty with stories like this, and you're really ripped up over them, this is why we have clergy serving in this parish you can always call and say, I'd like to talk this through some more. I'm struggling with this. You should struggle with stories like this. What I want us to see in this flood story is that as horrifying as the flood is, the humanity deserves nothing less. And just note, by the way, in verse 7 it goes on to say that not only is God going to destroy humanity, but the animals and the creeping things and the birds are gonna get destroyed too. And you get asked, what did they do wrong? Well, we were the ones set in dominion over the world, we broke the world, it's our fault that they follow. So go home today and apologize to your dog because you're the one that broke the earth, not your dog. See, the gospel in the flood is that God is grieved and we need to hear that if we are gonna hear the gospel. The heart of God is grieved with our wickedness. But the gospel in the flood is that God is gracious with us. See verse 7 says that God is sorry that I have made them, and I know I I pronounce sorry like a Canadian, sorry about that. Um, (laughs) God is sorry that he made us, but the entire gospel Is found in the very next word, verse 8. It says, God is sorry that He made us, but, but, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, favor, that word there is the Old Testament word for grace. It's unmerited, it's unearned, it's this experience of having God show His goodness to you when you do not deserve it. This is what Noah was given. When it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, it means that it was a gift that was given to him. Because let's be clear, Noah was nothing special. And how do we know that? Because look at the way that God speaks about humanity. In verse 5, verse 6, and twice in verse 7, he uses the word man, mankind, singular, humanity. The word that is spoken over humanity is that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. That all of us, every single human being is broken and wicked. This is what God sees when he looks down. Noah, do not read it this way. Noah is not some special man who somehow managed to live a different kind of life than the rest of us. Noah was a wicked sinner just like you and me. And yet the text tells us that Noah found favor. In the eyes of the Lord, unmerited goodness and gift. As Al Moiter says, if we're to understand the statement, therefore, that Noah found grace, we must reverse the word order and say grace found Noah. Grace found Noah, that which he did not earn. See, as we see in the gospel each and every day, especially when we gather here on the Lord's Day, in the context of our Eucharistic service... We hear both the parts of the Gospel. The fact that God is grieved with our sin and that yet God is gracious with us. That opening word of the prayer of consecration in the Eucharist we'll hear in but a few moments from now. Lord God our Father, when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death You sent your son into the world for our salvation. And if we are hearing that gospel of God's grieved heart and yet God's grace, we will be undone. This is the goodness of God. In the flood story, we see that we have grieved the heart of God and yet God is gracious to us. But even more... What we see in the flood story, the gospel of the flood, is that God is not only grieved with our sin, God is not only gracious with us, but God is in the business of growing a faithful obedience within us. He's gonna use this gospel to grow a faithful obedience within us. Look at verse nine. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Again, we'd misread it if we think that this righteousness and this blameless status is something that Noah has earned. As every commentator from the early church through to the Reformation says that I've read, this is a direct result of verse 8. Because Noah was graced, shown favor by God, he was able to live into this new life. It was that God had shown him grace that he began to learn faithful obedience, to walk with God, walk out this life in faithful obedience. This is the result of the gospel. Noah begins living a new kind of life, a new quality of life, being able to be freed into faithful obedience. Imagine for a moment the hardship that Noah faced. We don't get a lot of the details, but we know he had to build an ark. Think about the ark's size. Think about the animals and the organization. Think about the setbacks and the disappointments. Think about all the difficulties he faced. His obedience was hard and so is ours. The reality in our lives if we are living into a faithfully obedient life is it's going to be hard It's going to be difficult. Look at chapter 6, verse 22. I love to see this obedience lived out in a human being. Verse 6, chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Again, chapter 7, verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah's life is marked by this obedience. This new life of walking with God is marked with faithful obedience. He faced the hardship of the calling of God and he actually lived into it. He was enabled, because of the gospel, to live into this new reality. How? As I keep saying, it's not because Noah was so special. It's that the gospel is so special. It's not that Noah was so strong. It's because the gospel is that strong. You see, the gospel of the flood will drown faith's greatest enemy. I'll say that again. The gospel and the flood, if we hear it, will drown faith's greatest enemy. What's faith's greatest enemy? What's really in the way of us living into the calling of God? What gets in the way of our obedience? Call it pride, call it vainglory, today I'll call it entitlement. Entitlement is what gets in the way. What gets in the way of our ability to live into the call from God in our lives is our sense of entitlement. Entitlement is a weapon that the enemy uses to immobilize our lives, to immobilize our faith. Last summer, I spent the majority of the summer trying to import our minivan from Canada. I kept going back to the offices, multiple offices I had to go to, with reams of paperwork, and every time I was told again and again, Great, but you missed this. Come back with this, and I'd come back again with another piece of paper, bit by bit, paper by paper, visit by visit. I realized I could probably import a koala bear easier than a van that was built in Kansas City, bought in Canada, trying to emigrate it back into the US. We had immigrated, our van had not. And so many times, I'd walk out of those offices, out of those meetings, and I'd be so frustrated. I'd, be, I'd feel indignation rising within me. Anger, frustration, indignation. And then I'd hear a small, a still small voice in the back of my mind say, why are you so frustrated? And I'd say back to the voice in my mind, because I deserve better than this. And the voice would say, do you? Where did you ever learn to believe that? Did you deserve better than this. It reminds me of the voice of Aslan. In The Horse and His Boy, there's a moment where Prince Rabadash, this young ruler, has been captured after a battle. And these kings are trying to decide what to do with him. And Aslan, the Christ figure, speaks over his arrogance and his entitlement. And he says, Rabadash, said Aslan, take heed. Your doom is very near. But you may still avoid it. Forget your pride. What have you to be proud of? And your anger. Who has truly done you wrong? and accept the mercy of these good kings. He doesn't repent, and Aslan turns Rabadash into a donkey, and so he's known as Rabadash, the Ridiculous. You see, entitlement must be drowned. And in this flood story, it's drowned by the gospel. The gospel tells us, if we can hear it, that I deserve nothing but judgment. And yet I'm given what I don't deserve. Grace. And this experience of grace changes Noah. Now he is free to begin to obey. Even when it's hard Because you hear it, Noah doesn't look at his circumstances going forward. After hearing this gospel of the flood, that I deserve nothing but judgment, and yet I'm shown something I do not deserve, grace, from that moment on, Noah does not look at his circumstances and say, I deserve much more than this. Noah, from this point forward, will look at his circumstances and say, I deserve much worse than this. And as his entitlement is drowned he can begin to faithfully obey. Can you see Jesus? Can you see Jesus in this? Can you see the one human being, God become flesh, who could have demanded everything? and yet demanded nothing and instead obeyed his father. This is why Paul will so rightly tell us to imitate Christ's own mind in ourselves. In Philippians chapter two, verse five, where he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As Jesus bore that cross, that cross for you, and for me to take everything wrong and wicked within us into himself. The one sinless man as he's bearing our cross is the one person who's walked this earth who could legitimately say, I deserve much better than this. And he didn't. He took our cross. He demanded nothing. Why? would we demand so much more? Dr. J.I. Packer, probably the greatest living Anglican theologian, who is an Anglican who taught me Anglican liturgy and history and theology, says that this gospel is what is trained in us every time we gather for the liturgy. Every time we gather with the liturgy, we've built within our Anglican liturgy this pattern. This is the pattern. Sin, grace, faith. We start with the collect of purity. We acknowledge our sin and the summary of the law. But then we hear grace as the word of God is opened and so we have faith. We say I believe. But then we go through that cycle again and we confront our sin as we confess that sin, but then we receive grace as we hear those words of absolution, and then we have faith again as we praise and bring our offerings of praise into God's house. But then one more time, we will hear sin in the context of the Eucharistic prayer, and yet we will hear and receive grace as we come to the altar. And then having been fed, we will find faith again as we respond in praise and self-offering and, O oh, Lord, send us out. This is the pattern of our worship because this is how we learn faithful obedience. I want to live more faithfully. I want to obey more consistently, more boldly, more joyfully. And so I need to hear afresh the gospel in the flood. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.